Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and thanks for joining us as we shine a spotlight on Stages. With over 230 episodes in the Stages archive, it's time to revisit conversations featured in previous seasons. Stages spotlight such episodes in case you missed them the first time round, or so you can simply savour a second listen. Either way, you'll be accessing precious oral histories from the people who were there, on and around our stages. Kate Gall has established herself as a distinctive and inventive director, with directing credits including plays, opera, physical theatre, devised works and classics for theatre companies and schools across Australia. She is artistic director of Siren Theatre Company, where her passion is for text-based drama, which challenges artists and audiences to have bold, imaginative experiences. She's been a considerable force in playmaking in Australia for over 25 years, directing premier productions and new Australian works. Her directing folio has covered a broad repertoire of stories. The Laramie Project, The Trouble with Harry, Svetlana in Slingbacks, The Ham Funeral, Run Rabbit Run, The Moors and Good with Maps are just a few. A champion of the work of Irish playwright Enda Walsh, she's directed productions of his plays Penelope, The New Electric Ballroom and Mr Man. The last play receiving extensive glowing accolades and huge success at the 2017 Edinburgh Festival. Extensive opera credits include Castor and Pollux, Eight Songs for a Mad King, The Cunning Little Vixen, Hansel and Gretel and Dialogues of the Carmelites. Kate directed a gender-bending HMS Pinafore for Hayes Theatre and its New South Wales tour in 2020. During the pandemic, Kate has been a saviour in lockdown, regularly recommending a vast repertoire of world theatre that periodically played online. She has her finger on the pulse of exhilarating theatre and those who make it. If it's a must-see, Kate will urge us to see it. Kate Gall is a vital artist and one whose productions never fail to impress, to engage and to prompt discussion. Let's start with a little bit of fun. Okay. All right, okay. So you've just come into some money, right, a million dollars. Oh, gosh. What would you do with it? I'd probably pay off a lot of bills first. <laughs> a struggling artiste? Yeah. What would I do? A million dollars. There's not much you can buy with a million, Pete. Probably buy some property for my superannuation. That would probably be the serious answer to the question. But if it was a million dollars and all my bills were paid off... See, this is interesting. ...and my superannuation I, was secure. I've given you a million dollars, but... Uh, first point of call, you're looking at your own security yes. uh, rather than doing anything theatrical with it. So, so I just know a million dollars doesn't go very far. That's in the theatre? The it doesn't go very far in life. Right. If you look at the property prices around here, um, no, look, obviously it would be great to, you know, maybe go off to somewhere like Tassie and buy a big shed and turn it into a theatre and have an ensemble and create fabulous work for a new audience. That would be marvellous. And then using all the skills that we collectively have, we could tour our work on, you know, go so, to festivals. So why Tassie? I just thought real estate would be a bit cheaper down there. Oh, Although right. that's not actually true either. But right. uh, And are they, miss, are they missing out? Do they have a state theatre company? Uh, they have a couple of professional theatre companies down there. But I guess 10 Days on the Island was the festival that was created, I think it's biennial, really in lieu of an ongoing adult theatre company in the sense that it was well-funded, although there are there are project-funded and reasonably well-funded theatre companies there. But performing arts need such numbers of people to really make it work. 
And so a festival gives their audiences, I guess, a really wide, you know, a wide taste of what's going on. You know, they have a quirky little thing. It has to be from island culture, but that can be from New York, of course. And now Mona's started up, and although they don't really do theatre as such, culturally that's completely changed that island. Um, so I think that's an attractive reason to go as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a sort of an international destination now as well. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places, um, although I've chosen to spend most of my professional life in Sydney because I like to be in bigger cities. It's certainly the case that um, being a regional artist is not a thing to be sneezed at and there are plenty of examples of people who don't bother with Melbourne and Sydney. They just go take their work internationally if that's what you want to do. yeah. 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 So, because you grew up in Tasmania, of I did. That's why I talk about it at length. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and you champion it. I do a bit. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, where did you grow up? I know in Tassie, but in the, Tassie, which city? Which I town? I grew up in a valley called the Lachlan Valley, which is outside New Norfolk in the Derwent Valley, south of Tasmania, about about forty k's from Hobart. Mm. My father was a hop farmer, and so I grew up on a farm. Right, so what happened? So, so grew hops, yeah, which hops. were then used to hops make, make beer. beer. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, so they, was that? Oh, there's brewing companies in Tasmania. Yeah, of well, Cascades, of yes. course. Yeah. Um, Jones and Co were the buyer, and Jones and Co is a, a big kind of corporation these days. Um, I think it always has been. Um, it also bought hops from Victoria and Tasmania, which are the two hop growing regions in Australia. My father was a small independent farmer, and he stayed doing that until the 80s when he retired. Um, yeah, so they would have gone into beer, Cascade probably, or Bogues, yeah. And what did Mum do? Mum was um, a homemaker. Okay. Mm. Well, she married a farmer, so she became the farmer's right-hand woman. I mean, you know, <laughs> being on a farm is like, you know, you do, you do need two people to run a farm, you know. Uh, so did you have animals? Yeah, we had animals. Yeah, yeah we had animals. Um, it- we had dogs and cats and guinea pigs as pets, but my father had ran some sheep, which we ate. And some cows. So did you help out run the, the cows yeah, and sheep Yeah, we did all too? that yeah. and grew vegetables. Um, still to this very day, I find it quite strange going to a supermarket and buying fruit and veg, although, of course, I've been doing it all of my adult life. But for me, growing up, the vegetables always came out of the garden. And what we did or what Dad did every night was he went and got the vegetables out of the garden. And that's what we did. It was amazing. And we'd eat lots of chops. <laughs> and chops. Those meals must have been delicious. <laughs> Meat and three veg. Well, I suppose they were. I don't know. My mother was a pretty ordinary cook when it came to the everyday. Yeah. Uh, what sort of child were you? Were you a show-off, being no, somebody who was destined for the no. theatre? Or, or did you realise that the theatre no. was... No. I was thinking about this in relation to meeting with you today. Um, no. I... As a child, I think uh, I loved reading and I used to love making puppets. So we used to do endless puppet shows and during the school holidays, you know, we do sort of theatrical presentations in the garden. I have a couple of sisters and we had friends in the valley uh, and we would do movable theatre around the house, you know, so that my grandmother and my mother would have to get the promenade performances, (laughs) often miming to things like Jesus Christ Superstar perhaps. We did some choreography, that sort of thing or more adventure stories. But no, I, I think I was a, a quiet and studious child. I don't know. I wasn't a tomboy and I wasn't really into farming. And when I was nine, I went to boarding school in town. So I sort of became a city slicker pretty soon. 
So boarding school, mm. did you go home at weekends or yeah, was it ter- uh, during term? Yeah, holidays? I used to. I decided to go home fortnightly. I thought I'd be a big girl and go home fortnightly because right. it was sort of fun hanging out on the weekends with the older girls. I was the youngest boarder. Right. Um, I was nine. So it was sort of fun hanging out with them. And uh, yeah, I used to go home every fortnight. So did you find a drama outlet at school? Well, this is the interesting story. I was way too shy to participate in any theatrical activity. Um, But I think the big experience that I had in my teens, uh, I had a very gifted and inspired drama teacher at the school, Deirdre de Blas, um, at St Michael's Collegiate School in Hobart. And every so often she would take a school trip to the Adelaide Festival and it came, I think it was 78 was my first Adelaide Festival. I was old enough to go on a school trip and... It was completely life-changing. I hadn't involved myself in drama at school. Um, As I said, I was way too shy because it sort of involved acting. I remember the very first show I saw when we we got to Adelaide in the morning and that afternoon we saw a show. It was in a tent, I think. It was called Rockola. It was Australian. Jackie Weaver and Chris McQuaid were in it and I remember them distinctly to this very day. And I remember being there thinking, uh, these people are my tribe. And that... Adelaide Festival was incredible. It was an incredible life changer for me. I came back to school extremely confident. I knew what I was going to do. I had no idea how I was going to do it, but I found something that I knew I could love. And yeah, I went from being a very average student to being the top of my year very quickly. And I think it was because I found what I knew I would do. Academically. Yeah, academically. And then I became involved in drama and yeah, just spent all my time in the drama room as you do doing everything, painting sets, doing the costumes, getting the prop, the props ready, you know, just literally doing everything. I mean, I just don't think I turned up to other classes. Um, it was one of those sort of absolute passions. So yeah. did you perform in the school plays or mm. were you more behind the scenes? I had to perform. That was a necessary part of the whole deal because, right. I don't know, people just didn't not perform. Having said I didn't like uh, performing, I was too shy to do it, the drama teacher decided I was the only one that could play the lead in our school play. So we did uh, my last year of school. The first play I was in at school, I think I was second neighbour in a production of Blood Wedding, the chorus of Blood Wedding. So that was a sort of nothing role. I did props and all the sort of backstage things and made headdresses for the bride and oh, just loved all of that. Loved the Spanish plays, gorgeous. The next year it was our turn to be in the major roles and we did Ring Round the Moon by Jean Ennui and I played the twins because I went to an all-girls school right. and the girls had to play the boys. Yep. Um, I think I was a tall girl. <laughs> I don't know. I had no idea. It must have been awful. I don't remember much about it, except, you know, there's a couple of times when you're on stage and it feels really good. I remember feeling really good about it. But, yeah, I loved it. Great. Yeah. But I did, acting wasn't something that was really for me. Yeah. But you had a, a short-lived career in front of the camera. I did. Um, hosting a – was it a children's TV yeah, show in Tasmania? Mm. It was called KTV. It was made by Taz TV. Not Kate TV. No, but people thought it was Kate TV. <laughs> I used to get fan letters from young uh, young viewers, Kate V. Um, but no, it was Kids TV. Uh, it was a local production. A Taz TV was the commercial station in the south of the state. Uh, I think they did uh, between 400 and 500 episodes. It was a magazine-style show. I suppose it was in the style of Simon Towns' Wonderworld, which right. was really big. Yes. So there's a host, that was me, and then there were reporters who would do five- to ten-minute stories, and there'd be two or three of those, and it played once a week, I think, and it did so for many years. Um, I think the Nine Network bought it, and it was played in regional Australia, and I know that it was dubbed into other languages and... 
I think it was sold to Southeast Asia and the Middle East. Yeah, so the stories were very universal and not time-bound. Uh, yeah, and I did that while I was at university. Mm. What were you studying at university? I did a double major in English literature. Oh, I did great. an arts degree. Okay. Yeah, I suppose I thought I was going to be a teacher or something. Um, again, I hadn't quite worked out how I was going to make that leap from, you know, nothing in Hobart to the big wide world of theatre, um, although I did get involved in some youth theatre at that time, uh, yeah. So uh, what about um, university theatre? Was that... Uh, there wasn't really... The only thing they much. did in Tassie was the uni review. Um, they didn't have a serious drama society at, in Tasmania when I was at university. I think there might be one now. I think I think the one started in the early 90s. I think it's called Plot. I think it's still going. No, it was only Uni Review, which wasn't really my cup of tea. So I got involved in youth theatre. And from youth theatre, I think I might have done a couple of amateur shows. I would have been working in stage management in the amateur shows. Yep. And at the time, uh, this was in the 80s in Tasmania, and I suppose in regional theatre generally in the 80s there was it's my understanding that there was a lot more funding. And there were various stabs at professional companies in Tassie, but one began called Zootango, and I went straight into the company as a stage manager. And I kept working with Zootango in many roles, stage management, production management, I mean, all the sorts of jobs that didn't involve acting, you know, made costumes, did the props, the same old story, just different people, you know, helped build a theatre, did all of that stuff, it was great, did lots of touring um, until I... Uh, decided that I would just direct and then I sort of finished doing all of that. Mm. So were you given an opportunity to direct something with Zutango? Not or? with Zutango, no. no. Um, so how did directing come Okay, about? yeah, it's a, that's a very good question because I think I really wanted to direct for a long time. I didn't have any mentors. There were no opportunities for that in Hobart at all, at least I couldn't find any. I have to say that when I started working in the professional theatre, I just didn't want to go back to amateur theatre. So in a way, I didn't leave myself with many opportunities at all. I played a lot of theatre sports, which I loved, and to this very day, I look back on that experience. I mean, apart from the performance angle, which is kind of fun, but the story building and the knowing what works um, and the sort of, I guess, the great philosophy of yes are things that have absolutely stood me in great stead. Uh, and it's really only now that I'm beginning to fully appreciate the simplicity of that transaction. So I couldn't find anybody to say yes to me as a director. But then one day, this is a great story, like most small towns, great amateur theatre, great amateur musicals. You know, that was, you know, those events would fill theatres, of course. Um, professional theatres would struggle. But the amateur musical every year, you know, absolutely full. And uh, the lady next door to the theatre, the Peacock Theatre in Salamanca Place, next door to that there's a shop called Aspect Design, which is run by the Bowlings, um, who are very involved in theatre. And Christine asked me if I would, out of the blue, direct a double bill of HMS Pinafore and Trial by Jury. And I just thought, what language is she speaking to me? I just said, of course, I'll say yes. But you'd never heard of these. Uh, I didn't have uh, a I clue. I mean, I knew what, what trial was because trial was done every year at the local law court and I think I'd been to see that. Right. I had no idea what Gilbert and Sullivan was. I'd always sort of looked down my nose a bit at the Gilbert and Sullivan Society right. and uh, another life-changing experience. Uh, so I jumped into that and I... I took it very seriously. I had a concept and it was uh, I created a complete world, uh, much to the horror, I think, of the, uh, the members of the Gilbert and Sullivan Society who told me where the costumes were for each show. And I said, oh, we won't be using those. And they looked at me in horror. 
during rehearsals, they'd always come up to me saying, what we usually do here, Kate, is... And I realised, because I, I, I always love the fact that I'm terribly naive about things, I realised, of course, about three weeks into it, oh, they, don't, they think I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, the poor things. I did know what I was doing. Uh, I was following my instincts. And it was great fun. And when the curtain went up, we, we, and we played on the stage of the Theatre Royal in Hobart, which, of course, beautiful is theater. a beautiful mm. theatre. Really, I consider that to be my spiritual home. And you know, it's the oldest continually running theatre in Australia, I think. But it's a yeah, beautiful it's, stage. I think it has a sister theatre in Ballarat. Ah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Look, it's iconic. And yeah. you spend a lot of time there if you're going to do anything in the theatre in Tassie. It was beautiful to do uh, Gilbert and Sullivan on the stage of the Theatre Royal. It was an absolute sort of, you know, privilege. But, of course, when the curtain went up that night, I had one of those other moments again, like going to Adelaide. This is completely life-changing. Now I have found what I will be doing next. So, you know, I'm always one for pursuing everything with complete 100% passion and audacity until the next thing shows up. And I knew then that yeah, I've, I'd found the key to directing. And so I think... What, what was it that seduced you? Was it the, the control or the ability uh, to stamp your imagination onto the storytelling? Probably all of those things, but I think it was literally as the curtain went up, I saw my world. Yeah. I'd sort of had created or I helped create that world yeah. with the company and I'd really encouraged some quite bizarre behaviours from some of the cast. Like I know trial by jury is supposed to have a jury of 12, but we had a man who always come to, came to make the tea each night and at rehearsal and they wouldn't let him be in the chorus because that meant it would be 13. But I just said to him, if you turn up in a costume, I'll let you be in it. But I'm a great believer in that. You know, yeah, he, he paid his dues and he yeah. knew it better than anyone else. Yeah. And, yeah, I think just taking it out of its sort of slightly dusty 19th century um, shell, uh, yeah, I, it was very joyous. Um, but it's that, you know, yeah. the 13th juror, it's that yeah. you can do anything on the stage, can can't you? you? If you exactly. set up a convention or, or this is mm. what's going to happen That's and, right. and commit to it, the audience will go with and, it. And nobody's counting, for God's sake. No, no. But one of the things I, um, I always remember about uh, doing the Gilbert and Sullivan, which I loved, what I um, – and also just knowing how to cope with the chorus – um, you know, like mums would come in and there'd be all sorts of timing problems because they had to look after kids. And so I would encourage the kids to come to rehearsal, which was something that nobody had ever done before. But it just meant that everybody was very happy because they didn't have to organise childcare and the children would sit and play um, quietly or be entertained by us and things like that. I think um, the community spirit of working with the amateur company was something that I had never really experienced before. It had to do with numbers of people and the fact that they were all just quite serious about going about what they loved. And so at tea break time, they'd be having a raffle to help make money to, to do the new costumes that I had so insisted upon, of course. And I loved all of that. And I always remember thinking, oh, I'm so glad I've had this experience because um, the professional theatre is its own kind of family. But there was nothing, I'd never experienced the warmth and generosity uh, as I did during that time. Yeah, and I think it's something that I've, I try to, I guess, manifest in my own workplace too. Yeah, well, amateur, amateur theatre or, or community theatre, whatever yeah, you want to say, theater, yeah. is, a, is a great um, learning uh, yeah, yeah. place, isn't it, it is. for for anybody wanting yeah, yeah. to go into the theatre, whether it be actor or behind oh, the absolutely. scenes, because you get a taste of everything. And yeah, as you yeah. say, you had a a go backstage yeah. making costumes. Yeah, yeah. 
That's right. Set, crew, props, direction. And acting. I think if you want to spend any time doing larger shows, um, if you want to go into musicals or opera, you need to have done some community theatre. You need to know how it works. Components. Yeah, and what the language is. And, um, yeah, it, all parts of the art form have different etiquettes, I guess. And, um, yeah, you will learn that on the job in a professional scenario. But I think that the amateur world is just really great for that as well, or community. Yeah, I, I think it's all good. So then I proceeded to take up the story. Having seen the curtain lift, I I was leaping ahead. I thought, well, I must do more directing. That's what I must do. Mm. But I thought, I can't really stay working for a theatre company during the day, if you like, in a sort of a professional capacity um, as a production manager or producer or whatever I was doing and be a director by night. I think I just think, A, the workload would be too big. And also, I just want to be taken seriously as a director now. So I literally quit all my jobs in the theatre world. And I took my one and only real job, um, which was for Arts Tasmania. I worked as a project manager for a year for their funding body before I left Tassie. And I was still... um, We had an extremely healthy series of shows in the Botanical Gardens, Shakespeare during the night, and... um, shows for family and children during the day which I was producing at the time I didn't give that up because that was just something that we were really doing I I suppose me and my fellow artists were doing off our own bats in a way yeah and it's great to be sort of independent I suppose and you know certainly with the kids shows we were literally doing it as a door split but we were earning so much money it was sort of like we couldn't possibly give that up yeah so it was great so how long did you, how many years were you directing in Tasmania? Oh, only about one. Okay. Um, so how did um, <laughs> NIDA loom? I just I made that my next, the next part of my plan, Peter, was to uh, leave the island. Right. Uh, I thought it would be uh, a good thing to be in an environment that was more critical, um, where I could meet more people. Yeah, I wanted to have bigger experiences. And as I say, I would have no 
compunction about championing championing and advocating for um, regional theatre. Um, I just didn't want to continue in that vein at that time. So I thought, well, I have to get to Sydney. That's my thing. A lot of people from Tassie end up in Melbourne. Right. It's not the case so much these days. But back then, uh, you know, every second person you'd meet in Melbourne might have been from Tassie. So I thought, no, I'll go to Sydney. I'll go. I'd been to Sydney once before in my life. I mean, this is unbelievable now, but I'd only been once before. So I sort of vaguely knew about it, the Opera House. So, yeah, I went, I got into the directing course. Yeah. Thank God. I don't know what would have happened to me if I hadn't. Well, I guess um, I would have got here eventually. Eventually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Paths always work their, yeah, exactly. their way out. So drama school, I mean, there can be nothing like it. How did you cope with um, this new environment oh, called look, NIDA? Well, it was great because I wasn't in Tasmania. All of us in my course at the time were in our 30s and the rest of the school, it was very small back, I was there at 96 and I think there were only 150 students in the entire school and there were six of us directors and all of us had had lives before going to NIDA. I think we were all a bit shell-shocked for about six months and in the second six months it was time to think about leaving. So it was, um, yeah, it was really hard. It was hard being in Sydney. It was hard not having any money. I didn't know where I was for about a, for an 18 months. I, I went to live in Kensington, of all places. Is it still a year course? The courses now have become MFAs. I right. think they're longer. Right. Yeah, they're still they're postgraduate. Seems a short time. To, yeah, it is to really get your head around the craft of directing. Oh yeah, totally. But I think yeah. it's a lifelong pursuit. Yeah, it's more. I used it's always learning on the job, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, night as a finishing school, I guess. Well, Dave, uh, David Mamet says that drama schools are all about um, students just wanting to please their teachers. It can you know, be. It's not until yeah. you get out there and start working with an yeah, audience yeah. that you actually learn. Yeah, it, that's that's probably true. Look. I think that uh, certainly, um, I mean, we did learn things and we did have great opportunities and we did meet a lot of people. So it was just a foray into a slightly different world. I mean, I think it's quite different now, although all of those things are quite, all of those things exist. Yeah. And yeah, you make, you make connections that sort of re- you retain, I guess. Do you remember the play that you auditioned with? Because you had yes, to prepare a play to I did, to, um, I did to Michael submit. Gow's Away. Oh, great. Yeah. I was going to do something really clever with Midsummer Night's Dream, but I chose Away, which contains Midsummer Night's Dream, of course. There's a little event in Tasmania called the Deloraine Drama Festival, which I believe is still going. It's a one-act play festival where you can go and put on a one-act play and there's a competition and it's a big sort of long weekend away in Deloraine, which is a beautiful town in Tasmania. I had been that year as I was preparing my uh, project for the audition and um, we'd been fortunate enough to win. But what was really great was when the man got up at the end to give out the prizes, it was very much like that opening scene of Away where with Roy. With Roy. And I went back to that play and went, I know this world too well, I have to do this play. And... Yes, my audition was also post things like uh, Strictly Ballroom. Um, I mean, so like camp had really entered into the sort of, I guess, the more uh, into the vernacular, I guess, more. And I just felt that Away could be a really great camp romp and not lose any of its heart. So, yeah, I sort of chose that because I felt I knew, I just knew the world of it. Yes, yeah. In Tasmania, do you go for beach holidays every Christmas? Is that a... 
Not a really. Thing to do. We'd been on one beach holiday, I think. I right. know oh, we'd been on a couple. Are there any beaches in yeah, Tassie? Yeah, there are beaches. Pardon like, my ignorance. Bruny Island has nice beaches at right. Adventure Bay, and uh, Dens Point is another place people go. We'd been to a beach called Gravelly Beach in Launceston, I think, once. That sounds very painful. Yeah. <laughs> It was gravelly, I think. Yeah, not like in they don't people don't have beach holidays like they do in a way, but uh, they all have families. <laughs> so I yeah. think you can relate to that. And what was your graduation play? What did you prepare for? Oh my uh, god, I did a stage version of Tennessee Williams' film script, Baby Doll. Oh wow. Mm. Why didn't I just do a play? I don't know. Well, Because no, no, I, I love Tennessee Williams. Right. And, you know, he was a great one-act play writer. Yep. And often they were sketches for the bigger plays. 27 Wagons Full of Cotton, which is quite often done actually, yep. was the beginnings of what eventually became or parts of it are contained within the film of Baby Doll, which is really an extraordinary script. And, of course, the film has such an, um, you know, an amazing history. It's a beautiful film. Yeah, I thought, well, we'll just do a stage version of that. Um, it was quite fun, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think it entirely worked, um, but, uh, yeah. But you had a go. Yeah, I love, I love Tennessee Williams. Why not? <laughs> Work with the greats. Who doesn't? <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> uh, so what, what makes a good director? Uh, patience, I think. Um, when I go to the theatre now, and I don't mind how rough a production is or how sort of how it, it may not have been entirely realised, I think what I look for in the director is a spark of originality of some kind. Uh, and I think that person can become a good director. I mean, there are certain skills that you can learn. Um, it can't be taught, but directing can... You do have to learn how to do it. So I think I look for that spark of originality. So by that you mean showing us the world of the play through... Yeah. Something you, um, clear eyes. Yeah, clear eyes. Um, if the idea has been rigorously followed through, then that's great. But I think maybe your first or second time out, that won't happen. Maybe just the choice of programming, the thing that you choose to do to work on, can be something that really catches my attention. Right. Maybe the way you stage, the way you cast, the way you use space. I don't know. It could be any number of things. But as I say, it doesn't have to be glamorous, expensive, or flashy it just has to be sort of authentic in a sense uh, and I need to feel that there's an interesting storyteller at work I'm a very good timekeeper I'm, I usually come in with a goal for the day and that's really important isn't yeah it? there's I nothing like to, worse than yeah. sitting around with a director who isn't quite sure where yeah. they're going well if you've got the luxury of time and I think in the first week you can do that um, but there's so many calls on on your time and you know that old saying is jobs will take the time that you give them I like to come in knowing what I'm going to try and what I'm going to attempt that day. I may not achieve it, but at least I know what it was that we were trying to attempt. And then at the day you can reflect on it and go, well, look, we didn't get there or, oh, actually, gee, that we seem to have solved some problems or we're going in the right direction. I like to, I'm a stickler for keeping to time. That's the old stage manager in me, I think. Right. I just want to do the work and then I'm quite happy to go. I don't know. I, I guess... I just like to try and hear the play. Like, what does it need us to do? What does it need me to do? Hopefully very little. As I've got older, I mean, I think that my way of driving things obviously rules the room, but I try not to be uh, too present in a sense. I like to, well, I guess my job is to know what questions to ask. So that the actors can yeah. discover. Yeah, I encourage actors to come in with lots of ideas. 
And yeah, my job is then to reflect. Once we've set the course, I can just reflect on it and adjust. Is there a lot of laughter? Can be, yeah. Depending on the, yeah, the product, be. I guess. Yeah, I encourage laughter. I like gossiping a lot. We have little art, I call them art breaks. In art breaks, there'll be a little story or a, you know, a piece of juicy gossip. We'll all be laughing. And I go, well, that's the art break over. Now let's get back into it. <laughs> So you encourage preparation, of yeah. course, which any yeah. director should in, in their actors. Mm. But I know that you go to extremes with your preparation as mm. well. And, you know, I'm thinking in particular of um, you directed the original production of um, The Laramie Project okay, yeah. at Belvoir Street. Mm-hmm. And you went to Laramie, I didn't did, you? Yeah. And you met Moises Kaufman. Mm. And tell us a bit about that, okay. that process of preparing that production. Yeah, look, when I was offered Laramie Project by Belvoir, this was in, I think, 2001, it was the first production outside America of that play, although I think there was a simultaneous opening in Japan. So that was uh, an interesting experience. I kind of figured out from reading the play a number of times how it worked dramatically, and I think it's a very, very good piece of writing. And Moises Kaufman, who's the designated writer, worked with his team of actors to create this verbatim piece by them going to Laramie and basically interviewing people. We all know that story. Um, They had success with their first play that they'd done, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde, which had given them some, you know, grant money and stuff. They they had money to go off and investigate their next play, whatever that was going to be. It ended up being Laramie Project. I'd never been to America, but I've obviously I love American plays and uh, I'm thinking about Tennessee Williams again. And when I had been directing before I came to Sydney, I directed Sam Shepard, of course, Barry Child. Why not? Start with the greats. I've always loved American plays and I thought, oh, now I'm getting, this is getting real. Maybe I should go and dip my toes into that culture. And that's really, that was my first instinct is I just feel I need to go to America. I knew that he'd, uh, Moises Kaufman had used Our Town, I suppose, as a kind of skeleton for some of that play, which, again, is just a quintessential piece of American writing yep. about America. Yep. And I thought, well, hey, what is it, what's it going to cost me in the long run to actually just get on a plane and go and have a look? Because if I come back more confident, if I come back with some amazing insights, that's going to be better for the play. So I did. I went to America. I went to New York. I met Moises Kaufman. He was an absolute delight. Uh, talked a lot about the play, uh, particularly because of the fact that we were not Americans doing the play. And the Laramie Project, of course, begins with the original company coming on stage, explaining to the audience how they made the play. And my query to him was, well, we're Australian. Should we say, should we do that or should we have another opening scene? I think that's Especially being a verbatim play. Yeah, I was saying, should we come out and say, look, we're actors from Company B. um, Playing actors, American actors who created... and I think this is a pretty good question. Yeah, Uh, And it's certainly one I knew that the actors would have as well. Like, who are we? Mm. that, That is a very legitimate and central question to acting. Who am I and where am I and why am I here? And that play certainly brought up all those challenges on the first page. And look, after lots of coffees and sitting around talking about it, um, he said to me, and it was a very, very, very good piece of advice, he just said, you know what, I think just do the play. Just do the play as it sits and it will work. And he was absolutely right. It was always in the back of my mind and I did have a, um, I can't remember the guy's name, there was a guy that worked at the company who I really liked and I think getting close towards opening, I gave him a list of questions. I said, just come in and see the run and tell me, if, do you think about any of these things when you're watching the play? Does it worry you? It, does, it didn't worry him. So 
Moises Kaufman's advice was really spot on. Given that I was in America, I thought, well, I should go and check out Laramie. This could be, you know, it's a bit gruesome, but I'll go and do it anyway. So I went after Thanksgiving and, and it had been snowing. So it was very cold. I, I do remember that. Moises Kaufman had connected me with some of the people in Laramie uh, that had been quite close to the project. Uh, and Who were perhaps characters in yeah, the Yeah, they were, had actually been interviewed for the play. Um, Laramie, of course, is a university town. And so a lot of these people were living there because they were working with the university. There was also a woman called Beth Lafreda who'd written a book about the Matthew Shepard tragedy. And I also met her and she was quite interesting. So, look, it was great. I went to Laramie, I think, for a couple of days. It's a small town. I'm from a small town. I think I got it. Yep, I got it. I learnt a lot about the way the play had been made. Some of that I shared with the company uh, that I worked with and some of it wasn't relevant because, you know, the task of actually putting on that play for the stage was an act of the imagination and I thought we need to be engaged imaginatively you know, facts are only useful so far in the theatre um, and how we cre- create truth is, you know, that's done in a myriad of ways. So, yeah, it was a, it was a good confidence builder for me so, to do that, yeah. And I had the time, I was able to do it and I was extremely fo- fortunate that I could. Mm. You've also worked on uh, various, um, the development of original Australian mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in the country. What's your, what's your process like there? I mean, because you're working with a playwright quite quite closely, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, yeah. Look, it sort of depends where the play is at when at it comes to of, you. Yep, yep. Yeah, okay. So, for example, I think I can think of two examples um, which are both extremes. One was, um, again, this is uh, an example from some years ago, but it's a good one, Alma de Groen's last play, Wicked Sisters. I directed the Australian premiere of that. That play, she's obviously an extremely advanced playwright and that playwright had already been to the Playwrights Conference once and had been read by really senior Australian actors. It's a play for for older women and so they're going to be all very experienced actors. Um, it had been read, she'd heard it, but it had, hadn't been prepared for the stage. So uh, I think when it came to us at Griffin, in testing it and getting it up, there were certain things that would come up that perhaps were not as consistent as they might be when you're just reading it or doing a reading. And I always like to have an open dialogue with the writer. At the time, Alma was living in the Blue Mountains, so she wasn't able to come in, which was fine, because we did have email. And so I would ask her questions, and she would then start rethinking about the play and perhaps send back some alternative lines or perhaps a different order of scenes or whatever. We did it that way and then she would come to rehearsals towards the end of the process. I think that there are other cases where the writer might be in the room more often. I always think it's good to do that by invitation because it gives you a chance to play. I mean, we can't get up and do the play perfectly the first time. We have to kind of play with stuff. I think it's always good to show the writer alternates. If something's not working, I think it's really a really great idea for the director and the actors to come up with a couple of alternate scenarios. Showing's always better than telling. Um, and say, look, it could go a number of different ways, we'll show you, and then hopefully the writer can choose the right, the one that works for them. It is very time-consuming. Um, I worked on Brendan Cowell's first play, first professional production of Rabbit at Griffin, that was another Griffin production, um, and he hadn't finished that play when we started rehearsing it, and his film career was taking off, and he had no intentions of finishing that play, and I don't mean that in a bad way, it was just hysterical, because we sort of 
laughed our way through rehearsals and got something on and it was pretty funny um i'd love to see his revised edition of that text now which i still think is it's a really amazing play um but yes sometimes you just go well we're people of the theater we are doing it um what is stylistically and story-wise consistent with this work. And then there can be other plays like Run, Rabbit, Run, where it's actually your first script is six hours long and it will be, you know, under two hours when it gets to the stage. So that process of editing with the writer, with the actors can be, you know, it's really time-consuming. And I imagine sometimes you have to submerge yourself in in, in the world of a play Mm. which you have no idea about. You're Mm. completely in the dark. Mm. Like, I don't imagine you're a great fan of uh, the NRL football. No. But with Run, Rabbit, Run, you had to quickly have a steep learning curve about what it was all about. Yes, yes. Well, I first of all, um, I growing up in Tassie, AFL was our code, and my father was very a very great sportsman, loved sports. I've seen lots of AFL, so I know what the hype of sport is. But going to the NRL is very different. Yeah. So first of all, just understanding as much as you can about the culture that you need to to understand the play, I guess. Yes, you just have to have a lot of energy, I think, when you're working on new plays, uh, which is probably why emerging directors tend to do that the most. Um, It's the energy that's required. It's above and beyond the eight-hour day for sure. Um, And particularly there may not often be a dramaturg in the room and you can often be the conduit between the stage and the page. So you're the one conveying things to the writer and back. You talk about Tennessee Williams as a a favourite playwright. What other playwrights inspire you or... Or that you were drawn to? Mm, I've Well, of recent times, I've uh, produced and directed a number of works by Enda Walsh, who's a contemporary Irish writer, of course. I love Irish writers. Um, I, so that, that, there was Penelope, yeah, I think, and New Electric Sykes. Ballroom. Oh, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Yes, Mr. Man. Ballroom, uh, Mr. Man. Yeah, yes. Mr. Man. Um, there's a couple more plays which the rights are not yet available for in Australia, so I just wait. I'll wait for that. Um, really, I was inspired... Um, I'd read The Walworth Farce when it first was first published. I'd read something about it and I got hold of a copy. I just loved it. And then we were really fortunate the original production toured to Australia. And it's mind-bogglingly good stuff. You know, I love I love people like Carol Churchill, of course. Yep. Um, I'm thinking of, of contemporary writers. Um, you know, in Australia, I love Maxine Mellor. I haven't directed one of her works yet, but I've certainly got one on my pile, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, all the classics, I guess. I'd like to do more Chekhov. Yeah, which I, I just adore. And, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of good writing out there. Yeah. Don't forget, there are many more interviews available from The Stages podcast, including this one from Stuart Green, theatre historian and bar manager at many of our live theatre venues and cinemas. Stuart has worked in theatres for the past 40 years and has a myriad of tales about the folk who have adorned the stages and behind the scenes anymore mm. and you couldn't and even the last years of the match uh the dances the people like we used to get we had no green room at her majesty's you remember the downstairs yep. bar that yep. was that the was green the room. gathering place so when you had a musical in like 42nd street you'd have 40 in the cast you'd have 60 working backstage 30 piece in the orchestra 30 piece orchestra uh, and they'd all be out the bar afterwards so we'd be talking theater all night it was like going out every night it wasn't like working working at her majesty's for 27 years was like going out every night for 27 years um, and the same with the Royal, but the Royal didn't have the bar, the bar wasn't open afterwards, so it was like party time. Yeah. And you could talk theatre all night. To anyone? Yeah. And they stayed there, and yeah. it was great. Yeah, but... 
with Mr. Man, you yeah. experienced considerable success mm. and you took it to Edinburgh, did, the Edinburgh Festival. Did, yeah. How was that? It was great. We did a season in 2015 here in Sydney. In 16, we went to Hobart and 17 was last year. We went to Edinburgh Fringe. We thought, why not? Why not? Why not? Why it's not? There. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm really pleased we did that. It was just a great experience. It's completely mad. You never say never. I don't know whether I'll do it again, but it was a very good experience. Our play stood up very well. We took uh, three works. The other one was a um, monologue by Noel Janachewska, an, an Australian writer. And Jane Fe- um, Fegan performed that. And uh, we were both received extremely well. Yeah. By critics and audience alike, as they say. But it's, it's mad. I mean, you know, everyone's must, heard of it. Yes. Edinburgh Festival, you should go. Yeah. It must be exciting being amongst so much mm. theatrical activity and, yeah, and the yeah. energy must be extreme. Yeah. it's Look, there's 3,500 shows in four weeks. So, you know, it's a smorgasbord. It's a big, it's a big leap from Adelaide Festival or Adelaide Fringe, let me tell you now. Um, I think that uh, if having done it once, I think the first time you go with a show – which is what I did last year, is you probably get to start, you get to know the lay of the land, like where are the best places in town to do your show. So uh, I think that I was information gathering all the time. It doesn't matter how many people you talk to on the phone that have been, your particular work and needs are always going to be quite specific. So I did learn an awful lot from talking to colleagues who'd been before, of course. But now I've got a much stronger sense of the geography and where drama takes place and where people do their shows and what theatres you want to get your work into. But there's some fantastic work there. It's all of a kind of ilk, I would say, given its geography and that it's English-speaking, but that doesn't take anything away from it. The number of shows that have resonated with me in the year since I went, I think I got very good value for my money. <laughs> you know, it was great. We, I mean, I saw in excess of 70 shows, I think. I haven't counted that list for a long time. But, uh, look, it was great fun. Excellent. Yeah. Um, you've worked with uh, many of the professional theatre companies in the country yeah. um, and the training institutions. Mm-hmm. You've directed mm-hmm. at NIDA and WAPA, mm-hmm. et cetera. But uh, an artist, uh, there comes a time, I guess, where you've got to create your own work. Mm. And you started, you founded the Siren Theatre yeah. Company in order to do that. Yeah, yeah. When did you start Siren? Well, after I left NIDA, going back to the late 90s, really, I didn't have any idea where I was in the city and I didn't know what theatres there were and I didn't know what the scene was. I didn't think I would... I don't really know what I thought. I just thought I wouldn't have to be making my own work. But in that year that uh, followed my year at NIDA, I basically just said yes to anybody who asked, oh, would you come and direct us in blah, blah theatre? Because I thought this is the only way I'm going to find out what the scene is. I just didn't know what the scene was here at all. So, yep, I went and directed Tom, Dick and Harry in every, every nook and cranny of Sydney and I got a good sense of what was about. And by the end of that year, I thought I need to create a body of work probably... Uh, that aligns more specifically with my view of the world um, and also with artists that I'd like to work with. Um, Because often when people come and ask you to direct for them, then they go, oh, yeah, and this is our cast, by the way, which is fine. I think it's absolutely fine. But I also knew that I needed – I wanted to work with other kinds of people and do other kinds of work. So I started Siren with a view to do that and um, I decided that I would work downstairs at Belvoir Street and at the time that was a hall for hire. So I just hired it, we did our first production and then I just started doing a production a year. I started off with a three-year plan, I guess, and we did a production a year. It was really, and then I kept working with those actors and designers really for the next 10 years, not consistently, but we were a, a tribe, I guess, um, and it certainly did the trick. I mean, I think we all benefited from that. We all started working for professional companies 
uh, more consistently, which is, of course, what we wanted to do. I kept the company going because it gave me an opportunity to direct work of writers who may not get up anywhere else, to do things the way I like to do them, the stories I like to tell the way I like to direct. I have to confess I do have a very strong producing bent and it's hard when you have those skills to not just want to do it. I mean, you can do it. And I think I'm quite a good creative producer, so uh, I'm owning that now. I've done work in partnership with other companies. You know, having, having an entity, in a sense, allows you to do a whole range of things. I wanted to do some Shakespeare once, and I thought, well, let's just do some Shakespeare. So I did that. I hired a carriage works, did that. Yeah, so it's a, it's a little avenue to do things. And now I sort of just think judiciously about how that will be done. So, mm. what, uh, what makes a good story? What, what do you look to connect with? I think subversion. I guess the three, three things that I look for in any story is uh, revelation, is what's revealed and how it's revealed and whether it's of interest to me. Uh, transformation. Can we be transformed by this story? Are the characters transformed by the story? What scope is there for transformation in the theatre? And having set something up, if the writer sets something up, is it subverted at some point? Does it become something that you don't expect? Is there an opportunity for an actor to show us something that we don't expect? I'd probably say off the top of my head, which is absolutely off the top of my head, what I look for. No, absolutely. Yeah. That's, sparkling that's dialogue, right. sparkling dialogue. And I that's love what te- we look yeah. for as an audience yeah. as well, yeah. Um, I love text-based theatre. Um, it's not the only uh, form I work in, but, yeah, dense, intelligent, resonant language. You've had a go at opera I love and opera. musicals. Love it, love it, love uh, it. As well as plays. Yeah. Mm. It's a silly question, I suppose. Is there a form you particularly enjoy most? But I guess it's it's the work you're, you're working on work. at the time, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's all... It, look, opera, it's about scale. It's also the music, uh, the skill that's required to, to make opera. It's probably the only art form that stands up in the face of economic realities. It's not an economic concern. It demands so much of the people that work on it that, you know, in a way, it's it's kind of amazing. It's not amazing that it survives, but it's amazing when you hear people say theatre is dying. Well, it's not. You know, I think opera is the thing that sort of proves that we will give anything to see great work. It's always a joy, but probably it's just the scale. Bigger stages, bigger crowds to work with. Um, and the same with musicals to some extent. And there's a whole different way that those shows are made in the rehearsal room. Very different to doing a play. And I like all of that. You know, I'm very fortunate that I have, I can do all of those things and I love them all equally. What about yes. film? Have you ever... I dabbled. You have dabbled, dabbled with film? Dabbled, yes. Yeah. It's not my passion. It's no. not my passion. It's a completely different uh, way of working, mm. I guess, isn't it? Yeah. Look, the one thing that's great, if you ever do any film, uh, particularly if you're the director... It's great when you kind of like get the performance and you go, great, I never have to sit through that again. That is done now. We have done that. We can now move on. And I remember that uh, very clearly. I think I was actually making a film clip with a friend and we nailed this moment that we'd planned. And when we did it, I just thought, oh, my God, I don't have to ask her to do that again. This is awesome. Let's just move on. Um, look, it's really great. Again, it's a big It's a big. Uh, a big scale sort of art form, I suppose. Not my passion. So how do you how do you unwind? I, I know that you're a, a crafty person. <laughs> um, that, that's something you enjoy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I do. Sort of... 
I, I think that um, I like making things. It probably goes back to the fact that I used to make puppets as a child. Um, I think that I've, I always say that when you work in the performing arts, because it is collaborative and you're always relying on everybody else, you have to be part of a team, no matter what position you take in the team. It is a team event, you know. I always think it's great to have a hobby where it does not matter. You do not have to consult with anybody as to whether you are doing it right, <laughs> whether it suits them, um, and whether it's okay to proceed. Uh, so, yeah, I like to do, I mean, anything, you know, cooking, gardening, sewing, anything, any of those things are really useful that you just do for yourself. It could be reading as well, I guess, where you really don't rely on other people to get pleasure from it. Yeah. Does it get harder as you get older? As to get the jobs. I mean, I think as an actor, you know, you're getting mm. older and um, there's a whole new batch of graduates mm. coming in every mm. year. There's not as many directors coming into mm. the industry, but, of course, there's a whole new batch that, that people can choose from and they're there to make their mark. Um, yeah, it opens up the whole conversation about uh, the trajectory of directors, I would say, in Australia. Yeah. Look, I'm hanging in there till I die, so I'm never in any rush. You know, the attrition rate's quite high, Look, it's a complicated thing in Australia. There aren't enough theatre companies to employ the number of good people that are out there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, by virtue of the fact the scene is small, they're always going to be clubby. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. The thing is, I know that I, I've, I get better every time I do it. There's absolutely no question. Yeah. The work is lighter, it's easier. It, I think it's more beautiful in many ways. I'm very much on my own trajectory uh, it would be nice to be working on somebody else's dime, but it doesn't really matter to me that much. Young people are cheaper. Yep. Uh, and they'll work those long hours with new plays. So how, how do you get the work? Do you do you have yes. an do you have an agent? Yeah, I do. I have an agent. You're right. Yeah. So I have an agent, and you can pitch work to companies, right? Or to or find opportunities, I guess, depending on what it is that you want to do. Yeah. And it's probably relationships that you establish yeah, yeah. with playwrights, yeah. etc. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the performing arts is all based on relationships at the end of the day. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, you set where you want to go and set about making sure those relationships are secure, I guess, yeah. Who are the um, theatre practitioners that get you excited? Let me think. Um, as I said, I'm always really excited to see the work of new directors, right. directors I haven't seen before, you know, and there's always... a you know, at, at the bottom end, like the pyramid's quite wide with young directors um, or people who are doing it, starting off, I'll always go and check it out if I can. I, again, I just want to see that spark of originality and whether they have an ear for it, an ear and eye for it, because, you know, the theatre is for the ear and the eye. You want me to name names, don't you? I well, didn't not write, necessarily. I didn't write down. No, because no, um, it is a hard thing, you know, when someone, um, yes, possibly, <laughs> when someone throws a question like that at you. But, um, no, I just thought that there might have been a um, particular performance artist or designer or director or actor who you wouldn't miss if they I came wouldn't, to I town. wouldn't miss Robert, something by Robert, Robert uh, by um, Barry Kosky. Barry Kosky, Barry yeah. Kosky, I would be there, walk over broken glass because he has the spark of originality. It's a furnace. Yeah, <laughs> and he's great so. fun. Yeah. His works are great fun. I've always loved his work. Yeah, I love uh, I love Neil's fine touch, Neil Armfield's fine touch. Um, I really like Sarah Goods. Her work has really matured. I've really enjoyed seeing that. Um, you teach as well. I do. Do you, do you enjoy teaching? I do. I do. I 
never really had strong mentors in my own, I guess, um, emergence into the performing arts. Um, I had a very gifted and inspired drama teacher at school, as I said. Uh, I, th- I love to give back and I have found I enjoy it and I'm good at it. Um, I've always aspired to be a really good teacher. I spent some time with Anne Bogart and her company in New York oh, yeah, and they are incredibly good teachers. And the, of all the things I got out of that professional development opportunity, the big one was, or one of the big ones was, these people are fabulous teachers. I want to be like them. So I spent a lot of time studying how they how they taught and that has to do with how they create relationships um and how they communicate so yeah look i really enjoy i enjoy teaching Mm. uh yeah and bogart's viewpoints do you use any of that in your work um i think i use the language um i went i discovered um that Anne bogart was a living breathing uh theater director by pure chance i picked up a book in the library i think and i went who is this person this book looks interesting it was her first book the director prepares i read it and i went this all sounds like good sense and I discovered that she was a living, breathing person. So I thought I'd better find out a bit more. Then I discovered you could go uh, to New York yep. and uh, spend a month working with a company. They do it upstate New York every year. And so I went and it was – and at, at the time I was really looking for something to help concentrate and focus my directing language and I got the feeling from reading Anne Bogart's book that she was the right person for that. I knew that they used um, a training – thing called viewpoints and I also knew about uh, Tadashi Suzuki but that's all I really knew so um, I went and it was really great Uh, I think that I have always understood how to use time and space it was really good spending time four weeks with someone whose language is absolutely focused on using those components for creation so if nothing else I came back I think with clearer language Um, I think I was reminded to be more creatively brave and to have the confidence to do that. Um, What's great about doing those things is, uh, you know, there are people from all around the world there. So in a way, you're not just comparing yourself to people in Sydney, but you're seeing where you stand with colleagues of similar ages from across the country or across the world, which I was really, really exciting to find the cultural differences, you know, and I loved all of that. That was just awesome. It was really good. Yeah, and then working with... um, I mean, Anne Bogart sets directing exercises and then she critiques that at length. Uh, Hearing her give notes was really instructive for me. Again, because directors, we don't get to hear each other give notes. But just being in the room with someone who's a really experienced teacher, a great director, and then giving notes to a colleague as an equal was really useful for me. Mm. What's your next project? Gosh, well, I don't know. <laughs> you don't know. Can we talk about your I next do. project sometimes? Um, yeah, no. Or, or, I'm not, are you working I'm not, on anything? I'm um, not producing or directing anything this year. Um, I yeah. think mainly because last year was so huge. We had um, Harry, the trouble with Harry, Ham Funeral, and then three shows to Edinburgh Fringe. This year has just gone so quickly. Um, look, there's a number of things I would really like to do, and I'm hoping that next year will be a bonanza year. Fantastic. But certainly one of the things I will be doing next year, returning to my roots, is a, a beautiful production, a gender-bending production of HMS Pinafore. Fantastic. So watch out. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> the GNS fans, watch out. Um, but, yeah, yeah, you did have a big year last year, huge, so it huge. must be nice to sort of just um, yeah. stop and yeah. smell the roses for mm. a bit and prepare for um Yeah, yeah. I'm doing, um, I'm doing a student production at the Conservatorium and I'm also doing some assisting at Opera Australia, but I'm not having to generate the work quite as dramatically as I would. And I'm just enjoying reading some new work. I'm finding playwrights that I've never had time to read before yeah, yeah. and I'm really enjoying that. 
finding some really good black comedy. I think black comedy is something I really like. Black comedy is fantastic. I love black comedy. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's hard to write. Uh, and it's just fun, you know, having the time to actually just restore in that way. Yeah. Mm. So have you thought of any way you could spend that million dollars in the time we've been talking? <laughs> no. Yeah, maybe do a Tennessee Williams retrospective. Fantastic. I think that sounds pretty good. <laughs> I'd love to do Orpheus Descending with all the characters. You know, like his plays are big play. plays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You've got all the townsfolk and then you've got all your sort of principles. Like it's like a big opera really. And sadly um, I think that prohibits a lot of companies putting the works on, yeah, doesn't it's it? Really, because it's, it's just so yeah. – it's not cost effective. These days – if artistic directors are going to look at cast sizes of 14 plus, they're probably going to direct it themselves. And I think, why not? Mm. You know, why not? It might just be good to invest in a retrospective or a body of work that might not get seen. Maybe that's what I'd do with a million dollars is find a writer or find a theme or find a period and look at four or five works uh, from that and create just create a program, like a, a mini festival. The festival might take place over a year and a half. Uh, but, yeah, and just do it in... Uh, sort of interesting ways, like maybe change the relationship to the audience. Let's not maybe sit in a theatre. Let's, let's I don't know, play around with it. Yeah. Well, Kate Gould, um, I think you're one of our best and original directors. <laughs> your, Thanks, Pete. Your work never disappoints. And, um, yeah, uh, may you continue to give us many more exciting nights in the theatre. And um, I will. We look forward to Pinafore next year. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for chatting. It's been great. Go on the wrong, couldn't we? we could Sorry, go. was I boring? No, that was fantastic. That's right on an hour. <laughs> That's brilliant. No, that was great. I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to Stages. Don't forget to subscribe to us so you don't miss out on any more conversations like this.